the 8th century BCE, a father named Simeon frantically woke his daughter Ruth. It was still before dawn, and the groggy 10-year-old wiped her eyes with confusion. Simeon didn't have time to explain. They had to gather their belongings and flee their home in Israel immediately. Ruth knew her country had just lost its war with the Assyrians. Perhaps her father's panic had something to do with their new rulers. Simeon instructed Ruth what to do with a tremble in his voice. She must keep her face covered, and she mustn't look at or speak to anyone. If a soldier came after her, she was to run. Ruth was terrified. As quietly as possible, the pair snuck out of their home and into the streets. Throughout the city, Ruth watched Assyrian soldiers bang their fists on doors. Residents were then dragged out of their homes and ordered to stand in a line. Simeon knew there was no time to waste. He yanked Ruth by the hand as they darted in and out of alleyways. They couldn't afford to be caught. But when they turned a corner, they ran right into an Assyrian lieutenant. Where were they going? Simeon answered they were returning to their home in Judah, the country just south of Israel. As the soldier tapped the handle on his sword, Ruth worried their only option might be to run. Instead, the Assyrian nodded and allowed them to pass. It was an eerie moment. For all her relief, Ruth still felt an overwhelming sense of fright. She'd never lived anywhere besides Israel or even visited the southern kingdom. A few hours later, Simeon and Ruth made it across the border. Now in Judah, the young girl looked back at her fallen city. She wondered if the rest of her village was also being dispersed by the soldiers and if they'd ever return. But she never saw her tribe again. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from ParCast. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. This is our first episode on the Lost Tribes of Israel. Thousands of years ago, the biblical figure Jacob is said to have had 12 sons. His descendants grew into the 12 tribes of Israel. And for hundreds of years, these people lived together in two neighboring countries. But when the Assyrians invaded Israel, they deported 10 of the native tribes. The lost people never returned to their sacred homeland. Today, we'll cover the formation of the Israelite tribes as well as the Assyrian invasion that displaced them. We'll explore how the Jews in Jerusalem discovered the disappearance of the Israelites as well as what religious texts say about the missing people. Next time, we'll examine a few theories as to where the Lost Tribes might be today. One suggests that they traveled to Great Britain. Other researchers believe one group migrated from Israel to Southern Africa. And there are some who claim they settled in Ethiopia and still practice today.
We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. There's one thing we can all agree on. Dealing with pests is a pain. But luckily, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. So if your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened. I'm okay. Other people have it worse. It doesn't matter much. And through therapy, was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd started to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Between 1800 and 1700 BCE, the Jewish patriarch known as Jacob is said to have fathered 12 sons. Together, the family lived happily in the land of Canaan, which today encompasses Israel, Jordan, the occupied Palestinian territories, Lebanon, and part of Syria. But back then, a drought struck the land. Facing starvation, Jacob and his 12 sons migrated to Egypt, which was enjoying a surplus despite the tough times. For hundreds of years, the family resided in Egypt. It expanded as each son had thousands of descendants, all of whom were loyal to their family title. The lineages identified themselves by the names of Jacob's sons or grandsons. For example, there was the tribe of Reuben, the tribe of Benjamin, the tribe of Asher, and so forth. Though divided into twelve, they all identified as Jews, a single nation under a powerful god. However, the Egyptians eventually stopped treating the Israelites like equals. Seeing how numerous they'd become, the pharaoh feared their power, so he took them as slaves. From that point on, the Jews faced utter brutality. According to scripture, to protect his people, God unleashed plagues upon the people of Egypt, 
Only then did the Pharaoh allow the prophet Moses to lead the Jews to freedom. For 40 years, they wandered in the desert until reaching the Promised Land, modern-day Israel. There, the 12 tribes lived in relative peace, though they weren't always united. But around 1000 BCE, King David from the tribe of Judah rose to power in Israel. He's said to have unified the tribes under a single beloved ruler. For nearly 100 years, he and his son Solomon ruled all 12 houses in harmony, until one prophecy changed their entire world. According to the Book of Kings, during Solomon's rule, a royal servant named Jeroboam left Jerusalem on an errand for his master. As he departed the city, he encountered a prophet named Ahia. It was believed that Ahia had a direct line to God. If he proclaimed something, it was as if the Lord himself was saying it. Ahia ripped off his own garment and tore it into 12 pieces. He gave 10 of the shreds to Jeroboam. Then he told the servant they symbolized 10 of the tribes of Israel. They now belong to Jeroboam. Jeroboam was overwhelmed, but he trusted every word the prophet said. After all, he believed the holy man spoke for God. But the servant also knew the price of rising up against the king. If he claimed the right to rule, Jeroboam would be imprisoned, tortured, and killed. So he decided to remain silent. The prophet Ahia was persistent, though. He apparently told King Solomon that Jeroboam was meant to rule ten of the tribes. And as Jeroboam feared, the king grew furious. He ordered his soldiers to seize and murder the servant. When he heard of Solomon's anger, Jeroboam fled to Egypt. He hid, knowing he'd be killed if he returned. But during his exile, Ahia proclaimed his prophecy across the land. After Solomon's death around 930 BCE, the king's son, Rehoboam, took the throne. Jeroboam anticipated this might be an opportunity to go home, so he traveled back to Israel. Upon meeting with Rehoboam, he reminded the new king of the prophecy and demanded the ten tribes receive lower taxes and fairer labor laws, but Rehoboam refused. Word of the king's refusal to lower taxes eventually reached the ten northern tribes. Their citizens were angered, and they eagerly embraced Jeroboam as their new leader. After all, he'd stood up for them to Rehoboam himself. Jeroboam soon gathered his tribe of Ephraim and seceded from the kingdom. Then, the other nine tribes followed. The south had no choice but to accept the split. The north's manpower was too great. A war could destroy the two tribes still loyal to Rehoboam. After the secession, the new kingdom crowned Jeroboam as their king. They retained the name of Israel. Meanwhile, the two southern tribes, the House of Judah and the House of Benjamin, remained intact and became known as the nation of Judah. Jeroboam still had concerns over the recent split from Judah, though. He feared his people would frequently make pilgrimages to the temple in Jerusalem. If they did, King Rehoboam might refuse to let them leave the southern kingdom. So, to keep his citizens away from Judah, Jeroboam built new temples in Israel. But he made an unforgivable mistake. 
he created two golden cattle monuments for the people to worship. The idols directly violated the Jewish commandments, which stated it was against holy law to worship anything other than the Lord himself. As a result, the calves were considered false gods. According to the Torah, idolatry would ignite God's wrath. If anyone committed such a sin, they were to suffer divine punishment. Two centuries later, that punishment appeared to come in the form of an Assyrian invasion. In the 8th century BCE, the Assyrian Empire controlled most of what's today Iraq, Syria, and Saudi Arabia. Given the empire's impressive size and menacing army, the Assyrians had the leverage to force smaller nations to pay hefty tributes. Those that didn't pay faced the wrath of the military. Eventually, the Assyrians turned their attention towards the Jewish kingdoms. In the 730s BCE, they demanded the Jews pay a tribute or face invasion. This was a sobering threat, as the Israelites wouldn't have much hope of resisting an onslaught. Most nations gave in to the powerful empire, but the Israelites refused to pay. They didn't want to fall under Assyrian occupation, so instead, Israel decided to go to war. The ten tribes allied themselves with the neighboring region of Syria. Then they sent word to Judah, asking them to join in their fight against the Assyrians. They believed that together the three countries could resist the empire's brutality. Judah didn't want to incur the Assyrians' wrath, though. The two southern tribes decided to keep paying tribute. This response infuriated the Israelites. Even though they'd been split for hundreds of years, Judahites and Israelites were still both Jewish. To reject an alliance was seen as a betrayal. So, Israel solicited Syria's help in attacking Judah. The Israelite invasion virtually destroyed Judah's capital of Jerusalem. Plus, the war presented the Judahite king with a dilemma. Either join the Israelites in a hopeless battle against the Assyrians or face total annihilation. Both options resulted in his country's downfall and likely his own death. But then he found an alternative strategy. Judah called for help from the Assyrians. The Assyrians had two reasons to oblige. For one, Judahites had been paying their tribute. Plus, the empire wanted to punish Israel and Syria for avoiding paying the tax. Second, and more importantly, the Israelites lived on valuable land. By conquering the region, the Assyrians could establish dominance over all trade supply routes to the Mediterranean. The only thing that stood in their way was an alliance between two small countries. Soon, they brought down the full force of their army on Israel and Syria. Though the Israelites tried to resist, they couldn't compete with the Assyrian strength. They were bombarded by overwhelming manpower and advanced weaponry. By 721 BCE, the nation of Israel was gone. It was now just another part of the Assyrian Empire. And in the wake of Israel's defeat, the country was ravaged. The Assyrians' barbarity and mercilessness would have sent a clear message. They didn't just want to punish the tribes, they wanted to erase them from history.
Coming up, the Assyrians face their own threat of invasion. Love. It's been the subject of poems, novels, music, and film. It's also been the driving force behind some of the most horrendous crimes in history. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. Join me for season two of Criminal Couples and meet the lovers who took their passion to perilous lengths. Featuring standout episodes from female criminals, serial killers, solved murders, and crimes of passion, this season of Criminal Couples gets to the heart of what makes two turn to a life of murderous crime. Some couples were set off by revenge or greed. Others were fueled by sex and drugs. All acted in the name of love. Discover the darker side of desire in season two of the Spotify original from Parcast, Criminal Couples. Follow for free and tune in every Monday, only on Spotify. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. Now, back to the story. Around 730 BCE, the ten tribes of Israel refused to pay tribute to the Assyrian government. As a result, the empire invaded and devastated the Israelites. Once they conquered Israel, the Assyrians turned their attention to maintaining strict control of the nation. To prevent the tribes from resisting their rule, the empire tried to convert the Israelites into Assyrian citizens. First, they removed all religious artifacts from the Israelite capital of Samaria and sent the holy items back to Assyria. Then, they required all the Israelite leaders to take an oath of allegiance to the empire. Anyone who violated the pledge was punished, likely through painful execution. Both methods were meant to deprive the Jews of their sense of identity. The empire's government didn't want Israel thinking of itself as a country that had been acquired by Assyria. Now, they were Assyria. But the empire's measures went beyond mere oaths and statues. From across his kingdom, the emperor ordered his citizens to move to Israel. Tens of thousands of Assyrian subjects emigrated to Israelite cities. They practiced different customs and spoke other languages, which was exactly what the king wanted. He hoped to destroy the Israelites' nationality by creating a new people. The crossover between the conquered Jews and new immigrants would create a new Assyrian culture. The emperor's assimilation tactics didn't stop there. After the conquest, the Assyrian king ordered his army to round up any Israelites who were wealthy, well-educated, or able-bodied. Then, he ordered his soldiers to deport them to different parts of the empire. He hoped that sending away thousands of conquered people would decrease the possibility of an uprising. With the most capable Israelites miles away, those left behind would lose their most pivotal leaders. This would also further muddle the Israelite identity. The population would be psychologically devastated by the absence of so many of their neighbors, friends, and family. And as they lived surrounded by Assyrian citizens, over time, the Jews' way of life and national identity would disappear. 
For months, the Assyrian army selectively deported members of the Ten Tribes. Those who resisted were punished, either through imprisonment, torture, or execution. But for many, losing their home, the Promised Land, was unthinkable. This prompted hundreds of Israelites to flee across the border to Judah, which they still considered part of the Holy Land. And despite the previous war between the two Jewish countries, Judahites felt some responsibility to protect the Israelites who fled to their nation. Their shared faith still united them. However, those that remained in Israel risked deportation to somewhere else within the Assyrian Empire. On short notice, soldiers demanded the Jews gather everything they could carry and prepare for a long journey. They were forced to say goodbye to their friends and neighbors. Then they followed the Assyrian soldiers into the desert. The Jews didn't know where they were going or whether they'd survive once they got there, but they had no choice but to trudge forward into the unknown. Once they reached their new village, the Assyrians split the tribes into two factions. The Israelites, deemed superior, based on their vocations or expertise, received preferential treatment. Many in this top tier were soldiers and were soon drafted into the Assyrian army. For the Assyrian military, these skilled soldiers held special value. Up until this point, the empire's army was largely composed of conquered peoples, not just native citizens. To have expert soldiers, like charioteers, gave the military an invaluable new advantage. Soon, the Assyrians elevated these Israelites to a higher place in their society. These soldiers received extra rations, better living arrangements, and even high-ranking jobs in the government. Gradually, many members of the tribes blended into Assyrian culture, but not all deportees assimilated so easily. Non-elite Israelites were treated like second-class citizens. The Assyrians provided them with meager rations and forced them to work on roads and walls for the empire's benefit. The tribe's day-to-day life was filled with strife, but being so far from home, they could do little to fight back. Just as the king had intended, the oppressed Israelites didn't have the energy or the manpower to rebel. And on the other end of the spectrum, even the most powerful displaced Israelites had no reason to resist. They enjoyed wealth, extra rations, and access to power. Neither group wanted to draw the ire of their Assyrian superiors. According to the empire's laws, any Assyrian official could call for a Jew's imprisonment or execution. So for Israelites living in fear, assimilating wasn't just necessary, it was the difference between life and death. They learned the native language and intermarried with citizens of the empire. Some even worshipped the Assyrian gods. The deportees did whatever they could to survive in this new land. Taken away from their homes, the tribes became Assyrian citizens. To outsiders, they might not have been recognizable as Jews. For over a century, prophets like Isaiah and Micah told the Judahites that God would bring the lost tribes back to the Promised Land. So in the south, the houses of Judah and Benjamin waited patiently for the prophecy to be fulfilled. As long as the Assyrians were in power, though, it seemed impossible that the Israelites would return. 
But in the 7th century BCE, the Judahites found hope when another empire attacked Assyria. The invasion, carried out by Babylonia, led to a new era, one that only further deepened the mystery around the Ten Tribes. In 612 BCE, over 100 years after the exile of the Israelites, Babylonia, what's today southern Iraq, conquered the Assyrian capital. Yet, despite their new rulers, not much changed for the Judahites. To fund his army, the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, demanded tributes from Assyria's former subjects. The countries now under his control included Judah. So just as they did before, the Judahites agreed to pay. They would do anything to prevent their destruction. However, the Judahite king eventually saw an opportunity to challenge their oppressor. He refused to pay Nebuchadnezzar. The choice had dire consequences. The Babylonian emperor ordered his army to attack Judah and lay siege to its capital, Jerusalem. The two Jewish tribes of Judah were no match for Babylonia. Jerusalem soon fell under the empire's control. Much like Assyria did to Israel, Nebuchadnezzar decided Judah had to be punished for its insurrection. He deported thousands of Judahites out of the city. They traveled to Babylonia to live in exile. While Judah attempted multiple times over the next 30 years to revolt and drive out their Babylonian conquerors, each failed. The Babylonians responded by deporting more and more Judahites. They hoped this might break their spirits. And for all their resolve to keep fighting their oppressors, the Judahites may have paid the ultimate price. In 586 BCE, as punishment for their repeated rebellions, Babylon attacked Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar burned down the Jews' sacred temple, which held their most precious artifact, the Ark of the Covenant. Then, he deported thousands more Judahites across his empire. For 50 years, the Jews dispersed across the Middle East and into modern-day Europe, Asia, and Africa. It became known as the first Jewish diaspora. For decades, the Judahites kept their faith alive by praying for a return to the holy city of Jerusalem. They hoped the Lord would reunite them with the ten lost tribes of Israel. Exiled prophets foretold of the reunification of the twelve houses of Jacob. Some even claimed that when the tribes came back together, the Messiah would descend to earth. Year after year, the houses of Benjamin and Judah waited. And finally, something like a miracle occurred. In 539 BCE, almost 50 years after the Babylonian exile began, Persia conquered Babylonia. And the Persian emperor brought a far different strategy for maintaining order in his empire. He believed the best way to keep citizens obedient was to empower their specific cultures. This way, they would feel proud of their heritage while remaining loyal to him. The emperor issued a decree to all Jews in his kingdom. Jerusalem belonged to Israel and Judah. All Jews could return to their capital city and homeland at any time. The Judahites were thrilled. Not only would they soon travel back to the promised land, but so too would the ten lost tribes. Persia stretched across Mesopotamia. Much of its land covered the old Assyrian Empire. 
If the descendants of the Israelites lived anywhere within these borders, they would have surely heard the decree. Much like the Judahites, they would soon make their way back to the Holy Land. The two southern tribes traveled through the desert for months. Finally, they returned to Jerusalem. At first, they only saw other members of the houses of Benjamin and Judah. So they waited for months, then years. But the other 10 tribes never returned to Jerusalem. Coming up, the centuries-long search for the missing Israelites. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than 88 million in prizes, ranging from 50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now back to the story. After the Persians took over Babylonia in 539 BCE, the Persian emperor invited displaced Jews to come back to Jerusalem. For decades afterward, the Judahites anticipated their reunion with the people of Israel. But after years of waiting, the 10 tribes never returned. Over the next few centuries, Holy books and scriptures alluded to the Israelites' new home. They spoke of the ten tribes as if they still existed, but they also claimed that the return of the Israelites would have massive ramifications. The Book of Revelation, in particular, foretold the end of days. It predicted that the tribes would reunite with their homeland during the apocalypse. According to the scripture, the Lord would protect thousands of Jews, defending them from the end of the world. Though this prediction is from the Christian New Testament, the tribe's potential return still held great significance for the Jewish community. To find the Israelites, though, the Jews first had to understand why they didn't return in the first place. The Persian influence stretched as far, if not further, than the Assyrians had, yet the tribes didn't answer the emperor's decree. Judahites figured there could be two explanations as to why the lost people hadn't come back to the Holy Land. First, there was the possibility that they'd fully assimilated with the Assyrian cultures. Maybe they'd heard the decree but felt no need to return to Jerusalem. They might have considered themselves Assyrians more than they thought of themselves as Israelites, or perhaps They didn't even realize their ancestors belonged to the Ten Tribes at all. The Judahites had another theory, though. They wondered if the Israelites journeyed beyond the borders of Persia after the fall of Assyria. Maybe that's why the message never reached them. They could have been lost in a mysterious land. If that was the case, scholars theorized as to where exactly the tribes could be. 
they turn to holy literature. The second book of Esdras, written around the second century BCE, claims that the Israelites fled Assyria after the fall of the empire. According to the book, the tribes wandered for many years while the Lord guided them through the wilderness. He lowered mountains and calmed rivers so they could pass. Then the Israelites made a new home in a mythical region known as Azareth, which roughly translates to another land in Hebrew. To reach their new home, they had to cross a legendary river. Many Jewish writings spoke of this body of water. It allegedly contained holy qualities. For six days of the week, it flowed viciously. Anyone who tried to cross it would be swept away and drowned. Yet on the Sabbath, the river calmed enough for a person to reach the other side. However, because the Jews were forbidden from working on the Sabbath, they could never make their way through the river. So legend had it that the tribes were trapped on the other side. To find them, someone had to walk through the river. But there was one problem with this mission. No one knew the stream's location. Some theorized it could be the Euphrates in Asia, given its close proximity to Jewish cities and ancient empire capitals. Jewish scripture referred to a mythical body of water known as the Sambatyan, which some scholars believed could be the historic river Gozen in Central Asia. Other researchers claim the river ran deep in Africa. Perhaps the tribes migrated there after the fall of the Assyrians. For hundreds of years, the Judahites searched for the Israelites in the hopes of reuniting all of Jacob's 12 tribes. But centuries passed without any clues. There were no written accounts of the lost people or records of where they ended up in Assyria. It was almost as if they'd vanished off the face of the earth or that they had never existed in the first place. Jewish scholars began to lose hope. Out of the 10 missing tribes, they hadn't even found one. That is, until 883 CE, when one man arrived in northern Africa, claiming to be a member of a lost tribe. In the 9th century CE, a mysterious traveler journeyed to a community of Jews living in modern-day Tunisia. After introducing himself as Eldad, he asserted he was a member of the tribe of Dan, one of the lost tribes of Israel. The Tunisian Jews were amazed. They were well-versed in the legends of Israel and Judah. They knew all about the exile of the Israelites, and now they had one of the lost people in their presence. Eldad told them of his perilous journey across Africa. He described landing in Ethiopia with a traveling companion. But upon arriving on shore, a tribe of cannibals attacked them. They killed and ate his friend while keeping Eldad as a prisoner. He lived with the cannibals for months before another mysterious army attacked the natives and took Eldad as a bounty. For four years, he stayed with his new captors. Then one day, the army put him up for sale at a local market. There, he was discovered by a Jewish merchant. Upon discovering that Eldad was Jewish, the man bought his freedom. When the merchant brought Eldad home, he realized that the man who bought him had a special ancestry. He was a descendant of the house of Issachar, another lost tribe of Israel 
which lived in what is today Iran. The man later brought Eldad to Iran to see the tribe of Issachar for himself. Eldad said the tribe lived plentifully and followed Jewish customs. He claimed they still worshipped in the traditions of their ancestors, almost as if they'd never left the Holy Land. His tales riveted the Tunisian Jews. They couldn't believe he'd uncovered one of the lost tribes. They only grew more surprised when Eldad proceeded to reveal the locations of the other nine. Allegedly, the tribe of Issachar told him where every group lived. From present-day Armenia to what we know as Yemen and Saudi Arabia, these tribes had made homes across Asia and the Middle East. According to Eldad, two more of the tribes were nomadic, and the last four tribes, which included his own tribe of Dan, lived by a mythical river in Ethiopia. The Tunisian Jews were astounded. After centuries of searching for the Israelites, to be told the locations of all ten tribes seemed like an act of God. It could have been the moment the Jews had waited for. Maybe Eldad's revelations would reunite the tribes and bring about the coming of the Messiah. Yet others were more suspicious. It seemed almost impossible that a man could know where all of Jacob's houses were hidden. There was also the fact that Eldad spoke exclusively Hebrew. At first, the villagers thought this was impressive and a testament to his religious devotion. But he often said words they didn't understand. Members of the tribe assumed the unusual phrases were advanced or ancient Hebrew, so they asked Eldad to repeat or write down the unfamiliar words. It was only hundreds of years later that linguistic scholars examined the accounts of Eldad's sermons, and they discovered the strange words he uttered weren't Hebrew at all. They were Greek. It seemed that Eldad had been lying. Experts pointed out that the traveler had claimed he was from Ethiopia. If that were the case, he likely wouldn't have had access to people who commonly spoke Greek. Unless he was from somewhere closer to the coast, where the language of Greek traders might have seeped into everyday speech. Still, some believe this one supposed lie proved that everything else he said about the Ten Tribes was also a fabrication. Perhaps Eldad just sought the fame of discovering the Israelites. On the other hand, some researchers claim that Eldad may have spent time in captivity in Yemen, a country often visited by Greek traders. While imprisoned, it was possible he learned the strange language and then later used it in Tunisia. So maybe there was some truth to Eldad's story. Perhaps, but even now, researchers can't verify that. And despite the traveler's account of the Ten Tribes, there was no tangible proof of their existence. It was all word of mouth. In the years since Eldad's claims in 883 CE, many adventurers hunted for proof of the Israelites' location. Though few ever came face to face with the lost people, many have still claimed that they discovered the lost tribes. Over the centuries, the tribes have been identified in countless locations, such as Pakistan, Iran, Ethiopia, China, Japan, India, Great Britain, and even the United States. Though many Jewish groups have been discovered in unlikely locations, 
it's nearly impossible to determine whether these communities have any relation to the original tribes themselves. They could merely be practitioners of the Jewish faith, not direct descendants. Because of the difficulty of the task, the trail ran cold. Until the turn of the 21st century. Researchers believe they confirmed the presence of a lost tribe in southern Africa. The group shared some traditions, practices, and beliefs with Jews. But unlike other groups, one scholar believed he could prove their connection with the lost Israelites through their DNA. He announced that a lost tribe had finally been found, and they could prove it beyond a shadow of a doubt. Next time, we'll explore a few theories about groups who've claimed to be descended from the 10 lost tribes of Israel. Such as theory number one, the Israelites traveled to Europe and eventually settled in Great Britain. Or theory number two, the traveler known as Eldad wasn't lying. After the fall of the Assyrian Empire, the tribes migrated to Ethiopia, where their descendants still live and practice today. And finally, theory number three. A group in southern Africa is part of a line of Jewish priests, and they carry a specific chromosome that links them with the lost tribe. For thousands of years, people have hunted for the location of the lost tribes. Many believe they traveled to an unreachable holy land where they awaited the coming of the Messiah. But it's possible they're much closer and even hiding in plain sight. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. For more information on the Lost Tribes of Israel, amongst the many sources we used, we found Zvi Bendor Benite's book, The Ten Lost Tribes, A World History, extremely helpful to our research. We'll be back next time with a new episode. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Brendan Hawkins, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Alex Bernard, with writing assistance by Ben Hanani and Mackenzie Moore, fact-checking by Anya Bailey, and research by Bradley Klein. Conspiracy Theories stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. It's been said that love is a many-splendored thing. That is, until it's not. In season two of Criminal Couples, discover true stories of couples who turned their love lives into a life of crime. Lies and deceit are just the beginning. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Criminal Couples. Catch new episodes every Monday, free and only on Spotify. Spotify.